I don't know about you, I am so excited that it is officially pumpkin spice season, because that means it's fall. I know, fall is my favorite, and pumpkin everything. All the pumpkins. Winter's my favorite, but pumpkin spice is also a winter flavor, I have decided. But I am a hoe for pumpkin spice everything. You know what I love? Pumpkin bread. Ugh. Anything pumpkin. Pumpkin pie, pumpkin rolls, pumpkin bread, pumpkin spice lattes. That's me. Um, Specifically, fun story, uh, when I was in Norway, they don't do pumpkin as a flavoring. Like, pumpkin spice is not a thing in Northern Europe, apparently. Um, And that is what I was craving. So For like a year while you were there. But when I went home for the holidays, I loaded my luggage up with, like, pumpkin spice baked stuff (laughs) and did not realize until I got to the airport that I was like, oh, shit, I have luggage that is full with clothes and then bags of powder because it's like, (laughs) like the boxes and bags of, like, pumpkin muffin mix and bread mix and stuff. And I was like, oh, shit, I really hope this is going to be fine. It was. I don't remember if they looked into my bag and was like, what the f- Oh. This fat ass kid and his <laughs> <laughs> luggage full of baked goods. He just can't go a day without his pumpkin bread. <laughs> well, you're damn right. Oh, I want to make some yeah, right now. Same. But yes. And for the next five months, four months, pumpkin spice latte is what I will be getting. That's how I live my truth. Yes. And hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I just really want pumpkin right now. I really want to be able to wear a sweater. I know we live in Texas and that's not going to happen for a while, but I really just want to wear a sweater. I want to wear jeans. I haven't worn jeans since like March. (laughs) Okay. I wear jeans every day, but... No, I wear shorts to work. I can't do it. <laughs> I When I first started my job, or I guess it was a couple, it was like a month or two after I started, uh, one of my coworkers joined. And so she joined like, I don't know, April or May or something. And so I wear shorts every day in the summer because it's too damn hot. And then it was one day in like the end of November, I wore pants. And she was like, I don't think I've ever not seen your legs. <laughs> And that's I was like, so that's weird, weird <laughs> but also true. You're like, why are you looking? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I wish I had a pumpkin spice latte. I mean, I don't. I, I want my wine. But I feel like I need some comfort something for yeah. what we're about to get into in this episode. Yeah, agreed. Because this episode, my case in particular, is one that... I'll throw a trigger warning out right now, and then I'll do another one for before my case. But this episode will be filled with stories of horrific child abuse, child torture, really hard to hear things. So if you don't want to hear that, totally, 100% understand. Listen to one of our 70 other episodes we have going. Yeah. Uh, if you're a Patreon person, check out our different murder minis. But definitely do want to have a big, heavy trigger warning for this episode. Yes, and my case also has trigger warnings, in particular rape. So, like Ty is saying, this is a really intense episode. 
But before we get into today's topic, I do want to go back to time mentioned Patreon and we do have those murder minis. Um, another thing we've got are our bottle talk episodes. Patreon, we've talked about it in every episode. You guys know what it is, but it's where you can help support us. We're an independent podcast. We do this, you know, because we love you. And when you guys help us out on Patreon, it just, it helps tremendously. It makes sure we can bring you guys more episodes, different content, more podcasts. Because essentially, if you think about it, if you're on Patreon, you're getting three podcasts from us. You've got Blood and Wine. You've also got Bottle Talk and Murder Minis. So be sure to hop on over, check it out. We've got multiple tiers. There's even a tier where you can direct an episode, send us your wine recommendations. You'll get a handwritten letter from us. Just all the really fun things that we want to be able to give to you guys. So be sure to hop on over and check that out. Absolutely. And while you're doing that, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice if you're able to. Um, But hit that subscribe button. Then whenever we post our new episodes on Tuesday morning, then you will get them fresh into your queue and they'll be right there for you to enjoy. Yes. The topic this week is one that, like we were just saying a moment ago, it's very intense. So while all of the murder that we talk about, it's murder, it's intense, it's difficult, but there are some killers that are just a whole nother level of super fucked up. They're very sadistic. They have absolutely no regard for human life. They have no remorse for the things that they've done. They oftentimes don't even really consider what they've done to be something bad or wrong. And these super sadistic killers are the ones that are literally the boogeyman, the monster under your bed. Like these are the horrors that give you the nightmares. And so this week's topic is sadistic killers. Yeah. And it's, I mean, my, my case is, I think far and away the hardest one I will do or I have done yet. So y'all are ready to join us on this journey. Just buckle the fuck up. Yes. But before we get into that, let's get into our wine. What wine did you pick? The wine that I'm drinking today is the 2017 Linguist Estates Dry Rosé from California. Ooh, you picked a rosé. I am mm-hmm. actually surprised. I don't think you've ever picked a rosé. I I think I've done one before, but it's been a while. Rosé is not usually my go-to. If I go for a white, generally I go for something like a Sauvignon Blanc, as y'all know. But today I wanted to shake things up and... I thought a good contrast to a super dark episode was going to be a nice, light, crisp, fun, pink wine. So that was my logic. But the first release from Linguist Estates was a wine critic favorite, and it garnered praise from wine judges. This is their second release, the 2017. And it is this elegant, provincial-style rosé. It's very pure and refreshing with light notes of plum, strawberry, and pomegranate that are just bolstered by this bright acidity and very dry mouthfeel. So the wine itself was made intentionally to pair with food, but it also is great by itself. But this type of wine in particular is perfect 
at basically any table, especially if there's some kind of festive occasion going on. It pairs super well with classic, like, roasted poultry, chicken, turkey, um, as well as, like, grilled salmon, different, like, heartier fishes like that. But because of the lively acidity, it also pairs well with very umami-rich foods like a tomato bruschetta or something, which, to me, tomato bruschetta, like, sitting in, like, bistro chairs with, like, the ocean in the background, I'm imagining having French-style wine with Italian food in, like, the Greek island of Santorini. So basically, you know, just mishmashing all of that European cultures together. But that is what I want. Technically, you can get exactly that in Nice because it's there in France, but it's right by the Italian border. So all the food has heavy Italian influences, but it's very French. And there's rosé. It's literally like they pour it like wine. It's everywhere because it's from... They pour it like wine? (laughs) (laughs) They do pour it like wine, but I meant to say water, but whatever. You get what I'm saying. It's everywhere. It basically Uh, floods the streets. And so you just like lick the ground. Well, Just kidding, don't, don't do, do that. that. <laughs> but honestly, I want to go to Nice so bad, and that only makes me want it more. But this wine also took home a gold medal in the 2019 San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition and a silver medal at the 2019 Winemaker Challenge. So this is going to be a bomb-ass rosé. That sounds phenomenal. So... I am really excited for this wine, and I'm going to get into this bottle while you tell me about your wine. Yes, I am really excited to hear what you think of this wine and to hear you describe it um, as you actually taste it. The one I'm doing for this episode is the 2016 Armand Rue Verdelac from Bordeaux, France. So I went with another French wine, but... You guys, the Bordeaux region is so vast that there's so many different types of flavors of Bordeaux. Ooh, there's mine. That was good. So from the Armand Rue Winery there in Bordeaux, this one is a really good example of a Bordeaux-style red. The grape varietals in this wine are a blend of Malbec, Merlot, Petit Verdot, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. So there are literally five different varietals that make up this blend. This wine is a dull, deep red color and medium bodied. And as far as Bordeaux reds go, it's pretty moderate on the tannins and acid, and it's a little bit on the dry side. This wine has some faint aromas of cherry and mushroom. So it's that combination of fruit and like deep earth. The flavor... It's got notes of dark fruit and has a very classic Bordeaux taste. Um, It's very smooth, easy drinking, smooth, easy finish. And it really is one of those inexpensive, everyday drinking red Bordeaux wines. And it was once referred to as like your lunchtime wine. It pairs really well with charcuterie, especially some pate and terrine. Or if you are doing more of like a simple grilled meat like steak frites or sausage with chips, green beans, or lentils, this is perfect for that too. 
or if you just want some cheese. So goat cheese, sheep cheeses, very mild brie would go fantastic with this wine. So with that, it is a screw top again, because apparently that's all I buy now. Um, And I'm going to pour myself a glass because I I want to drink this wine. That wine sounds incredible. It sounds really good. One of my favorite meals, and I haven't had it in a long time, and I think I'm going to do it for dinner tomorrow. I think I'm going to run by Trader Joe's is wine with brie and crackers. Like, yes. God, I love a good wedge of brie. Brie is so good. I had some this last weekend on a charcuterie, and it was fantastic. Well, and Trader Joe's has this amazing triple cream brie that is really not expensive. Usually a wedge is 5 or $6 for, like, a good size. Like, this is something you should be sharing. Donate this all by yourself. And I'm like, fuck you. Cheese gods, you don't own me. <laughs> you don't own me. You don't own me. I'm also that bitch who has and will sit down and eat a block of cheese. Even though earlier today I was talking about how lactose intolerant I am. But but I, now you're like, cheese. Yeah, cheese is not something I'm willing or able to cut out of my diet, so deal. I will never be able to cut cheese out of my diet. Oh, oh, this smells so good. What smells are you I getting? I very... I very much get, like, the light summer fruits, so, like, those, the plum, strawberry, pomegranate that it mentioned. Mm, I love when you can smell the strawberry. That, generally, on rosé is what I smell the most. Yeah. Oh, and I don't remember if I mentioned mine is from California. Oh. I think I did. I think you did, but, I mean, good to have a reminder, because I was just talking about France, and I was honestly thinking of a French rosé, and that's not what you're drinking. Well, it's a provincial-style rosé, so... It's a Californian imitation of a French rosé. With mine, I very much smell those deep red fruits. I can I can sense that faint aroma of mushrooms because it's not necessarily dirt. But you know how mushrooms kind of smell like dirt? I get that a bit and I really want to try it now. So let's cheers. Yeah. Yes. All right. Here's to drinking some good wines. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. Definitely cherry. Definitely. Some nice red cherry, also some deep, like, blackberry. This is a totally a Bordeaux. I really get bits of this, like, Malbec and Merlot and Cab, and then at that those earthy notes are coming from this Cab Franc. And Petit Verdot, it's in there, but I haven't had enough Petit Verdot to be able to pick that out. But I very much can tell this is a blend of all of these. I'm a fan. This would go, this would be fantastic with a charcuterie. It's very mild, medium bodied, easy to drink. I would totally drink this as lunch every day if I could. Fair. This is a great rosé. It's definitely very dry. I'm not really detecting any sweetness. I know there's some because it's not, um, it's not so dry to the point of being unpleasant like some rosés can get. That are like dry to the point where they physically make your mouth completely dry. And you're like, water. (laughs) Um, This is a great one. I get, really I get strawberries, but not strawberry flavoring. Literally like almost ripe strawberry. Really? Like that, like biting into it where it's still like tart and sour. Yeah. Okay. I'm so into this rosé. I'm so impressed because again, I just... When you 
try wines like this that you say you're like, I don't really know about that. I get nervous because I'm like, I love rosé. You know how much I love rosé. I've done like 20 of them, I feel like, for the podcast. But I'm so glad you're enjoying this wine. I just like, I'm very happy for you. (laughs) Yay, I'm happy for me too. (laughs) Well, obviously, you would be pretty disappointed if you had a wine and you didn't like it. True. But with that, we have our wine. We have our topic. I'm just going to go ahead and get into my case. Okay, what case did you pick for today's episode? So the case that I'll be doing is the murder of Sylvia Likens. And again, before I jump in, I did want to mention that trigger warning for heavy graphic child abuse and torture. The sources that I use, Wikipedia, the article on the murder of Sylvia Likens, Breaking Blue, which is the Martinsville, Indiana High School student newspaper, This article was incredible, and I did not realize until I was going back to cite my sources that it was a school newspaper. Um, The article is The Tragic Case of Sylvia Likens by Alice Pickering. Alice, you're amazing. I cannot wait to read your articles in a few years when you're writing for, like, the Indianapolis Monthly or the Chicago Tribune or whatever. Yeah. I used an article uh, from All That's Interesting by Mark Oliver that I'm not going to... The title gives away a lot, so I'm going to leave it at that. And then I used an article from the Indianapolis Monthly, Looking Back on Indiana's Most Infamous Crime 50 Years Later by Sam Stahl. So before I get really into it, this case is probably going to be quite familiar to a lot of people because there was a film in 2007 called An American Crime that was directly based upon the life and murder of Sylvia Likens, and it also starred Ellen Page as Sylvia. Oh. Yeah. I've never seen the film. I haven't either. And I don't think I want to. Maybe I will after this, but Ellen Page is a really really good actress and i i just am worried at how real it could really be yeah so sylvia likens was the third of five children born to lester and elizabeth likens who were both carnival workers um her younger sister jenny suffered from polio so one of her legs was weaker and she also had this notable limp and had to wear a steel brace on her leg Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was pretty unstable. They would often sell candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands all around Indiana, frequently moving and regularly having just very severe financial difficulties. Their sons would regularly help out their parents when they traveled, and because of concerns just of their daughter's safety and stuff, they didn't like for Sylvia or Jenny to travel with them because it just, it it wasn't a good place for their young daughters to be. Because of that, both of the young girls would often stay with relatives, usually their grandmother, so that their schoolwork wouldn't suffer while their parents and brothers traveled around the state. Yeah. So really, her mom and dad are just doing everything they can to make ends meet and to provide the best life they can. their children well and it seems as if they have their children's best interests in heart like they know that their daughters need to not be on the road with them that they'll be better served living with their grandparents but there's a lot that tells me this is that that's not how the story's going i know it's not 
Yeah, it's not. But when Sylvia was a teenager, she would earn money from babysitting, running errands, or doing ironing chores for friends and neighbors. And she'd usually give her mom a portion of what she'd make to help out the family in any way she could. She was described as friendly and confident and lively. She had this long, wavy, light brown hair, and she was known as Cookie to her friends. She was also very fond of music, particularly the Beatles, which she's a teenager in the mid-60s. Of course she's going to be obsessed with the Beatles. Totally. I mean, I'm obsessed with the Beatles, and I wasn't a teenager in the 60s. I was not even a figment of anyone's imagination in the 60s. You were not, and (laughs) I am not obsessed with the Beatles, but... It's okay, Tyler, we all make mistakes. Wow, it's true, (laughs) I guess. Um, But one strong character trait of Sylvia's was she was protective of her more timid, insecure little sister. On several occasions, the two of them would visit a local skating rink, and Jenny would fasten a single roller skate to her strong foot, and Sylvia would hold her hand, and the two of them would skate around together. That's Because Jenny had polio yeah. and one leg that didn't work. Oh so. my gosh. So Sylvia made sure that she could still skate with the other kids and do fun kid things like that. That's such sibling love. I love that. Yeah, me too. So by summer of 1965, Sylvia and Jenny are living with their parents. Their parents aren't traveling at this moment. And on July 3rd, their mom was arrested and jailed for shoplifting. Oh, no. I'm picturing she was trying to get something for her family. I would imagine so. I don't know what she was shoplifting, but I would imagine something like school clothes or something. Yeah. Shortly after their mom got arrested, their dad, Lester, arranged for Sylvia and Jenny to stay with Gertrude Banaszewski who was the mom of two girls that the sisters had recently become pretty acquainted with while studying at school, Paula and Stephanie Banaszewski. At the time of this agreement, Gertrude assured Lester that she'd care for his daughters until he returned, as if they were her own kids. And he's arranging this because he has to go back out on the road, you know, working these carnivals to get money. Well, and now it's just him. Like, yeah. he really has to get out there. Yeah. I mean, mom is in jail right now. And even if she weren't, she would have to, you know, when she got out, she had to join Lester. Yeah. You know, they had to make what money they could. So when this nice neighborhood lady, who's the mom of their new friends they made at school, they made an agreement, of course, they'll stay. Easy. I know. It seems like, again, like such an ideal situation when you're faced with such a difficult decision of, of what to well, do when you have to travel to make money for your family. And like, of I'm, I know their dad wanted to stay with them, but he knew he had to go and do something because at that point in time, he was the only one that could make money to help them to like raise well, his family. Well, and I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, it's not weird. They have to like leave for a while. So, oh, they'll stay with friends. Like, that's normal. That's not crazy. Yeah, exactly. Gertrude was just as poor as the Lycans, and she had seven kids to support on her own in this rundown home. And so the Lycan girls were two additional? Yeah. 
So Gertrude made a little bit of cash charging her neighbors a few dollars to like iron their laundry, kind of like Sylvia used to do. And she was someone who'd been through multiple divorces and some of which had resulted in physical abuse against her. And she dealt with a lot of just crippling depression and was heavily using prescription drugs. So basically, she was not in any condition to take care of two teenage girls, but the Lycan family didn't really have any other choice. Did they know this thing? I think they knew as much as Gertrude told them. So, you know, they probably knew that she was also hard-pressed for money, but so was everyone else kind of thing. Yeah. So shortly after the July 4th holiday, the sisters moved into the Banaszewski house so that their dad and, and later their mom, when she got out of jail, could do the East Coast carnivals for the summer where they could make some better money. And there was an understanding that they would mail a check to Gertrude every week for $20 for helping to take care and board their daughters. Yeah. Until they came back in November of that year. So basically it was just for like five months or so they were going to stay here while they're traveling and they were, you know, sending money. And during the first few weeks that Sylvia and Jenny were there, things were going well. Sylvia regularly would, like, sing along with to pop records with Stephanie. Um, she participated in housework at the house. And both of them regularly attended Sunday school with the other Banaszewski children. The abuse, however, began when the first paycheck for taking care of the girls didn't come on time. In response to this, Gertrude began venting her frustration at this fact on the sisters and beating their bare butts with various instruments like a paddle and making statements such as, Well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. The check came the day after the incident, but from that point on, the house became their personal hell. Oh my god. And this is such a turning point after a couple, you know, a week or so of like things going really well. And then the check doesn't come. You then see Gertrude's real motivations, it seems that she's like, no, I need money. I said I'd fucking watch you guys. And now I'm not getting any money. I'm not about this. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it just the, the shift in it. On one occasion in late August, both of the girls were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with the paddle after Paula, the oldest daughter, accused the two of them of eating too much food at a church supper that they'd all been to. So it wasn't even something that had been prepared at home. It was somewhere else? Yeah. By mid-August of 1965, Gertrude had begun her focus of abuse almost exclusively on Sylvia, and her primary motivation was likely just being jealous of her physical appearance and how pretty Sylvia was. Why is jealousy so often a trigger for someone's violent behavior, you know? I have no fucking clue, because it's... it's ridiculous. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, it's called the evil green monster for a reason. And, like, we've all felt jealousy in some level. Like, that is a normal human emotion, human feeling. But when you take that feeling and take it out on others through violence, like, clearly there are things you need to deal with internally if you're experiencing jealousy on the regular. And, like, again, like I'm saying, jealousy is normal. But mm-hmm. if you're, like, taking it to an extreme, then it's something you need to, yeah. to talk about. If it's something that goes from being, like, annoying to something that actually makes you angry and gives you rage, that's something you need to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And it it very much sounds like Gertrude was at that high level of jealousy where it was creating violent behaviors. Oh, you have no idea. So this initial abuse included subjecting Sylvia to beatings and the refusal of sufficient amounts of food, which gradually led Sylvia to eating leftovers or spoiled food out of the garbage. On one occasion, Sylvia was accused of stealing candy that she had bought, like she'd bought with the family in front of people, and on another occasion, she was subjected to humiliation when she admitted that one time she'd had a boyfriend. How old is she again? She's a Uh, teenager, right? She's 16. On one occasion, when the family was eating supper, Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Lepper force-fed Sylvia a hot dog that was, like, covered and overloaded with condiments like mustard and spices. And Sylvia vomited after this and was forced to eat her own vomit. So now the kids are picking on her, too. Yeah. The kids are very... get very involved in it. Sylvia was later falsely accused of spreading rumors at the high school that um, Paula and Stephanie were prostitutes. So they came home and was like, Bomb! Sylvia's saying that we're prostitutes. And this provoked Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, to physically attack Sylvia... While Stephanie just watched and giggled. This is ridiculous. Like, everyone's against her in such a violent way. I don't understand. Like, what the hell did she do? She didn't do anything. That's the the One of the horrifying pieces of this is Sylvie didn't do anything. And even if she had, it doesn't justify what they're doing. Absolutely not. But it, it all just comes out of nowhere. On another occasion, Paula beat Sylvia in the face with such force that she broke her own wrist. And then later, when she had a cast on her arm, (gasps) she used the cast to beat Sylvia more. In addition to all of these, Gertrude repeatedly would falsely accuse Sylvia of being promiscuous and being a prostitute, and would just deliver these very misogynistic sermons to Sylvia regarding the filthiness of prostitution and of women in general and Gertrude would later occasionally force Jenny to hit her own sister and said that she would beat Jenny if she didn't and Jenny's the younger sister right she's younger than the younger sister with with polio polio. yeah that is not fair that is so not fair to bring her into this to threaten her and make her harm her own sister because she, I, I know she was fearing for herself, too. And, like, Sylvia, of course, wouldn't want to see her be hurt in the way Sylvia's being hurt. So I could, I mean, just, man, this is so fucked up. Yeah. 
So Coy Hubbard, Stephanie's boyfriend, and several of his classmates would frequently visit the house to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia, and they'd often collaborate with the other Banaszewski children and with Gertrude herself. With the active encouragement of Gertrude, these neighborhood kids would routinely beat Sylvia, lacerate her body, and burn her with lit cigarettes more than a hundred times, and severely injure her genitals. What the fuck? Yeah. I'm so mad, and I know you warned me about this, but this is more I, I than I when ever I said, imagined. When I said torture, I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever seen or read this kind of torture inflicted on someone before and literally the number of people that are ganging up on her and gertrude as this like leader and the neighborhood kids following it like was there never a moment where someone was like hey guys like maybe we shouldn't be doing this like what the actual hell is wrong or what is the influence that gertrude has on these kids to convince them to do this i think there was gertrude and i think there were probably a few other kids that were just fucking evil and then i think a mob mentality must have had a big part in it but still mob mentality does so much more than i think we often think about and it it is such an impactor for violent acts and outbursts and it's like we've said it before i'm pretty sure that sometimes we as human beings are fucking sheep and like don't be a sheep don't just follow what everyone else is doing because everyone else is doing it like think about what you're doing like is that something that you would be proud to say later that you did if it's not then think about really why you're doing what you're doing and clearly these people were not thinking about what they were doing no i mean to entertain gertrude and the kids Sylvia was once forced to strip naked in the living room and insert an empty Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina in front of them. And during this time, Gertrude is telling everyone that this humiliation is for Sylvia to prove to Jenny what kind of girl you are. Wait, so she is having her do this in front of everyone to somehow prove to her own sister that she's doing the what what yeah yeah. so gertrude's there the neighborhood kids are there jenny's there and she's making sylvia do this in front of everyone to prove that she's promiscuous and to show jenny like this is the kind of slut that your sister is and it's just it's so fucked up and i'm you are literally destroying this child in front of you And you have been for months now, but just the public humiliation and the... This is horrifying. It's hard to even put words to respond to to what you're saying into this story because it's it's reminding me on the same level of A Child Called It, that book. Mm -hmm. And where it's just so horrific that it's like, there's no way this is real. And what makes it scarier is that it, it is... Like, this actually yeah. happened, and I'm hurting. And y'all can see why I, I don't think I want to watch the movie. Like, I don't think I want to see this. So, when Gertrude was giving her sermon on the evils of sex, Paula, her oldest daughter, would stomp on Sylvia's vagina. And Paula, who was herself pregnant, accused Sylvia 
of being pregnant and then mutilated and stomped on her vagina again. And Gertrude's 12-year-old son, John Jr., would delight in forcing Sylvia to lick his baby brother's soiled diapers clean. Oh my god. Yeah, this is a family of fucking monsters. I I hate that Sylvia is going through this and that even the 12-year-old can force her to do these things because she knows the repercussions could be even worse if she doesn't. Oh, yeah. Or if she retaliates in any way or... Because, again, it's almost as if her sister is... Like, the way I'm imagining it is that, like, again, Sylvia has a big sister and, and... I have, I get this because I'm a big sister, as you know, you know, you, you're willing to take more on yourself, even if you only think it could potentially protect your sibling. Like, she didn't know for sure because this family is obviously fucking insane. And so they could have done something to Jenny as well. Because if it were me and I was in this position, I would be afraid that if I retaliated in any way... They would know that not only can they hurt me physically, but they could also harm my sibling and that would hurt even more. And it's just like, I can see why she's just unfortunately having to go along with these things. Like she is really being put in a position where she has no choice. Well, it's also one of those things of like, even if she, I'm I'm sure the idea of running away crossed her mind multiple times, but her little sister has polio and can't. Running away would be really difficult. Needs to be in a house and if she runs away and leaves her little sister there we you know like you were saying like what punishment could be inflicted on her so she's trapped she's absolutely trapped gertrude eventually forbids sylvia from going to school and during one of the beatings that she received after this stephanie one of gertrude's daughters rallied to sylvia's defense actually and really you know shouted to her mom she didn't do anything but that didn't stop gertrude gertrude burned sylvia's fingertips with matches before whipping her a few days later gertrude repeatedly whipped jenny with a belt after she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from the school to wear on her strong foot and it's not like gertrude's gonna get her any and the the sisters were both fearful of notifying either family members or even adults at their school of these incidents of abuse and neglect because they were afraid that doing so would just make everything worse. Jenny struggled with the urge to notify family members because Gertrude had specifically threatened her that she would be abused and tortured just like Sylvia if she told anyone what was going on. I knew she would do something like that, using what's happening to one to scare the other, or even, like, again, with, like, what I was saying with, like, Sylvia, I'm sure similar threats were happening to her. It's like, if you don't do this, or if you do this, then I'm gonna hurt Jenny. Like, it just, I'm sure that was used back and forth all the time. Oh, absolutely. And that was part of how this trap was woven so tightly. A dad in the neighborhood did phone the high school to anonymously report that a girl with open sores across her entire body was living at the Banaszewski household. And because Sylvia hadn't been to school in quite a while, the school nurse went to the house to investigate these claims. But 
Gertrude claimed that Sylvia had run away from home the previous week and she didn't know where she was and that Sylvia was just out of control and her open sores were because she refused to maintain decent personal hygiene. Gertrude further claimed that Sylvia was a bad influence on her children and her own sister. And after that, the school made no further investigations into Sylvia. That makes me so mad. But again, this is the 60s yeah. and that's, they did their, what they saw as due diligence. And at this point in time, I feel like you didn't, you didn't take it any further. Yeah, but I'm, it just breaks my heart because I'm like, someone did. Someone tried. You know, raise an alarm. Yes. Like, it is not like this was unknown to anyone. Like, people saw someone had the courage to say something and nothing came of it. I mean, although I will say it over and over and over, regardless of the fact that that unfortunately is a risk, like, that that could happen, always say something. If you see something that you even think for half a second could be questionable, then you need to report it because you could be the one thing that that saves someone. And don't let the fear of, like, unfortunately in this case, you know, they tried, the school came, the outcome wasn't great, but sure that neighbor never regretted what he did. Absolutely. He tried. And the thing is, there are so many people in this case who could have intervened and saved Sylvia's life, but that's not what happened and she was murdered. Yeah. So intervene. Yeah. Yeah. Safely. Safely. I'm not saying like I mean, put yourself yes, in but, between harm's way, like directly, but intervene. But do what you can. Yeah. So due to the frequency and brutality of this torture, Sylvia gradually became incontinent. So she couldn't hold her bowels or hold her urine anymore. She was also denied any access to the bathroom and was forced to wet herself. And as a punishment for her incontinence, on October 6th, Gertrude just threw Sylvia into the basement and tied her up. And there in the basement, Sylvia was often kept naked, she rarely was fed, and frequently she wasn't even given water. And occasionally, she would be tied to the railing of the basement stairs in, like, a torture rack fashion so that her feet were barely even touching the ground. Is this all happening in this five-month span before her parents return? Yeah, it's now October, and she's only been living with them since early July. I don't understand how this escalated like this. I don't understand any of this. I mean, this is something that you can't understand. No, I don't see how a person can have this much evil in them. I mean, I don't I don't generally think of people as being like good or bad because it's all gray. Everyone does fucked up things, everyone does good things, but this level of just evil, I can't fathom. I mean, there there are fucking serial killers we've talked about on this podcast who don't show this level of like malice and evil. Yeah. I feel like even some of the most fucked up serial killers that we've talked about showed i don't know like a little bit of caring i guess like humanity yes i mean not all of them though there are a lot that like are still super fucked up but yeah at least they pretended to be human so gertrude spread every story and rumor that she could imagine to get the local kids in the neighborhood to join in on these beatings and she told her daughter that sylvia had called her a whore and got her daughter's friends to come over and beat Sylvia up for it. She even told one teenager named Anna Sisko 
that Sylvia had been saying that her mom went out with all sorts of men and got $5 for going to bed with them. And Anna never bothered to find out if it was true. Gertrude told her, I don't care what you do to Sylvia. So she invited her over and just watched as Anna threw Sylvia down to the ground, beat her face, and kicked her. Shortly after that, Gertrude shouted for Sylvia to come into the kitchen. She ordered her to strip naked before proclaiming, You have branded my daughters because of, like, your influence and shit. So now I'm gonna brand you. (gasps) And she began to carve the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, into Sylvia's stomach with a heated needle. When she got to the point where she wasn't really able to finish the branding, she just grabbed one of the other kids that was present, 14-year-old Richard Hobbs, to finish carving these words into Sylvia. What? Yeah. I literally don't know how to respond anymore. Like, this is beyond, this is beyond anything I've ever heard. Yeah. I meant it when I said this was, like, the most fucked up case I've ever even heard of. I agree. I mean, it's horrifying, and it's it's unimaginable. Like, like I literally, to definition of unimaginable, I cannot picture any of this actually happening. And what horrifies me the most is that child abuse is something that's happening day in and day out. And it may not always yeah. be to this degree, but there's just, there's so much hate and violence and horrible things going on and i just again like i said if you are ever in a situation where you feel like this could be happening to someone you know or even don't really know like don't keep it silent well and also if this is something that's happening to you know that there are resources there are millions and billions of people out there who care and want you safe and want you to be okay absolutely and if you're in a situation where you're not sure what resources there are you can google it there are also different um i know for the case of like people in domestic abuse situations with a partner there are also a bunch of different websites um some that are even made to look like incognito but there's If you're in any kind of situation like that, there is help and there are people who want to help you. Absolutely. So getting back to my case, after carving this message into her body, Gertrude later taunted Sylvia and claimed that she'd never be able to marry anyone due to the words that were now carved into her stomach. And she told her, Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? And a weeping Sylvia replied, I guess there's nothing I can do, which is fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. And that night, Sylvia confided into her sister and told her, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm gonna die. I can tell it. Oh my god, she knew. Obviously she knew, but like, I know in that moment that meant she thought it was gonna be soon. Yeah. Well, at this and, point, her parents are about to be back. Yeah. I mean, it's it's getting into late October, and they're going to be back in November. And Gertrude knew that. She knew the parents were going to be back soon, and she knew Sylvia was dying. So she forced Sylvia to write a note to her parents, in which she told them that she'd run away, and that she'd met up with a group of boys and given them sexual favors, and Afterwards, they'd beaten her and mutilated her body. 
so that if her parents did find her, that would explain everything. And if they didn't, that would also explain things. Shortly after being forced to write this letter, Sylvia overheard Gertrude tell her kids that she was going to take Sylvia out to a forest and just leave her there to die. So Sylvia had one final attempt to escape, and she managed to get out the front door of the house before Gertrude caught her. Sylvia was so weak from her torture and her injuries that she couldn't have gotten too far. And with the assistance of Coy Hubbard, Stephanie's boyfriend, Gertrude beat Sylvia with a curtain rod until she fell unconscious. And then when Sylvia woke up, she stomped on her head. That evening, Sylvia desperately tried to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the basement walls with a shovel. And one of the next-door neighbors later told police that she'd heard some kind of commotion from the house and thought it was coming from the basement, but that about 3 a.m., the noise just stopped. So she decided not to tell police. Again, this is what I'm saying. Say something. Call the police. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're wrong. It doesn't matter if you think you hear something and the police come out and it was nothing and it like everyone's good it doesn't matter that's literally yeah. that that's why there are the resources that's why we have 911 so when you think or know something is happening you can call them and also if you don't feel like it's emergency there are like 411 numbers right yeah, you can call 411, which just is, it's a non-emergency number. And there's there's also, like, numbers you can call the police station that doesn't call a dispatch or whatever. But, I mean, any kind of situation like this, if you call 911 and you're telling them something and they don't believe it's an emergency, they'll tell you. I mean, they'll let you know the actual channels to go through or they'll connect your call. Or they'll realize, they'll be hearing things that this actually is something that's an emergency. Maybe they've gotten another call, another dispatcher's on a call from another house in the neighborhood hearing these same things, so that's starting to look suspicious, and you don't realize that, but because you also called 911, they're like, okay, some shit's going down and we need to go. Yeah. By the morning of October 26th, Sylvia was not able to speak or really correctly coordinate any movement of her limbs. Gertrude moved her into the kitchen and propped her against the wall and attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. But when Sylvia was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips, she got angry and threw Sylvia to the floor and then returned Sylvia to the basement. That afternoon, several of Sylvia's, of the like neighborhood kids and family, all these torturers, gathered around Sylvia in the basement and in Sylvia's state of desperation and delirium, she was jerkingly moving her arms in an attempt to point at the faces of her tormentors. And she'd make statements like, You're Ricky, and you're Gertie, before Gertrude shouted, Shut up, you know who I am. In an attempt to wash Sylvia, John Jr., the 12-year-old son, sprayed her with a garden hose. 
Sylvia again desperately try to escape and get out of the basement, but she collapsed before she could even reach the stairs. And in response to this, Gertrude stomped on her head before just standing and looking at her, looking down at her on the floor. What is with all of this stomping on her? Like, that is so violent. There's, there's so much force you can bring with your leg and a, and a stomp like that. Like It's not even... It's not just they're not treating her like a human. They're not even treating her like a living thing. No. You know, you wouldn't treat... You wouldn't treat a fucking spider like this. This is something that only a monster who doesn't understand life does. Clearly someone with zero empathy. Like, someone who... I, I feel like she has to be a psychopath. I mean, yeah. Like, she's, su- no... like she's suffering from severe psychopathy to not have any care in the world about these things. I... Maybe. I don't... I don't even know. Or again... At this point. Just so beyond sadistic. Yeah. So, after seeing her in this state, Stephanie, one of Gertrude's daughters, decided to give Sylvia a warm, soapy bath, but... Sylvia stopped breathing before she was able to be carried out of the basement. She was 16 years old. When Stephanie realized that Sylvia wasn't breathing anymore, she tried to give her CPR and give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, while Gertrude just stood there and repeatedly shouted to everyone present that Sylvia was just faking her death. Stephanie's the one that tried to make this stop earlier, right? She did. She was the one that she was involved in the abuse and torture in the beginning. But I think she started questioning it and realizing what was happening. Yeah. I don't even want to say early on because, but... But at a certain point, she did. Yeah. Sylvia Likens died on October 26th, 1965 from a brain hemorrhage, shock, and malnutrition. Gertrude was originally found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison, and this judgment was confirmed and upheld at a 1971 retrial. During her time in the Indiana women's prison, she was considered a model prisoner. She earned the nickname Mom, and in spite of public outcry, she was paroled in 1985. What? After how long? She was in prison for like 19, 20 years. That's not long enough. No, she needed to stay in there until she died. She needed to die in that cell. But afterwards, she moved to Iowa. She changed her name to Natalie Van Fossen, and she died of lung cancer on June 16th of 1990. And during this whole time, she never took responsibility for her crimes, and she claimed that she just didn't remember her actions. Two of her children received prison terms, Paula and John, so the oldest daughter and then the 12-year-old boy, got terms of seven years and two years, respectively. Uh, Stephanie received no time in exchange for, like, evidence and her full cooperation. So is Stephanie how so much of this is known? I think so, yeah. Stephanie and Jenny. Coy Hubbard, who was Stephanie's boyfriend, was convicted of manslaughter, but he only served two years before being released. He also never changed his name and lived in the Indianapolis area most of his life. He was tried for another murder in 1982, but he was acquitted. 
and he lost his job in 2007 when the movie An American Crime debuted and people realized who he was and what he did. That's Coy Hubbard. Yeah. Um, he died in June of that year in Shelbyville, Indiana. Richard Hobbs, who was the neighborhood kid who helped carve I'm a Prostitute and Proud of It into Sylvia, was also convicted of manslaughter. He served a two-year sentence and would later die of cancer in 1972 at the age of 21. One thing to remember, a lot of these people I'm saying are getting these like two-year sentences, seven-year sentences. They're like 14, 15 years old. Yeah, they're teenagers. Like it's, you know, these aren't people in their like mid-20s and stuff. And not that, I mean, obviously I feel like you can be six years old and fully understand this is not okay. But I, I think that has a lot to do with these smaller prison sentences. Yeah. Because I'm like, how the fuck are these people only getting two years? But I remember, they're like 14. That, and that's exactly, how, yeah, yeah. So the house in which Sylvia was tortured and murdered in was vacant for a long time after her death and the arrests of her torturers. Gradually, it became dilapidated and run down and discussions were held about possibly purchasing it and rehabilitating it and converting it into a woman's shelter. But the funds to complete that were never raised. And so the house was demolished and now is a church parking lot. And in June of 2001, a six foot tall memorial, Granite Memorial, was formally dedicated to Sylvia Likens life and legacy in Willard Park, Indianapolis. This dedication was attended by several hundred people, including surviving members of her family. And the memorial itself is inscribed with the words, This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. Cannot believe she was released on parole, but how how was she caught? Uh, so after Sylvia died, one of the neighborhood kids, I think it was Richard Hobbs, uh, who was one of the ones who was arrested, who carved uh, into her body, called the police. And once the police got there, it's not like, one, Gertrude tried to hide the evidence at all. No. And two, there were so many witnesses and so many involved parties that knew exactly what happened. That is one part of this case that is honestly blowing my mind is how many people were involved and how many people knew what was going on and how many people did nothing. I know. Even even the worst most fucked up kids that were in high school with me, I cannot imagine doing anything like this or being involved, let alone a shit ton of them. Like, there had to be someone who, let's just say everyone who was involved was just as fucked up and monstrous as everyone else. There had to be someone who told their friend, who was like, that's not okay, you need to tell someone. Yeah. Because these are like, you know, there are 12-year-olds doing this. Yeah. Like, 15-year-olds doing this. Like, just how many people were aware? And, you know, like I said earlier, how many people could have intervened and saved her life up until the end and didn't? 
Yeah. I mean, as much as towards the end, Stephanie, you know, it's it's nice that she, I guess, seemed nicer. She never called the police. She never did anything. She never tried to stop her mom, really. Yeah, there was more that she could have done if she really wanted to stop what was happening. Yeah. Yes, that was the most fucked up case you've ever done. Yeah. I mean, with that, um, I have a lot more wine to drink because I had to tell my case. So I am going to sit back and chug this bottle of wine while you tell me about your super fucked up sadistic killer. You'll need the wine. Well, let me just go ahead and pour some now. Scary stories aren't just for fiction novels. The most terrifying stories are the ones that actually happen. Nightmares brought to life. I woke up to a man standing over with his hand head. over my mouth and I bit his fingers I to lure us deeper into the forest. tapping on my window. Something was scratching her up and drag her into the woods. If you're fascinated by the morbid and sinister things this world is capable of, tune in to the Nightmare Society podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix. New episodes every Thursday. Sweet dreams. <laughs> well, and I also need some more wine before I get into my case. Because Fair. because of the topic and what the topic is, mine's, you know, a lot. So the sadistic killer that I will be talking about in today's episode is Carl Panzram. So Carl Panzram, you may not, that name may not be super familiar, but trust me, he is one of the most cold-blooded serial killers in American history. And that's actually kind of what my first source is titled. So the sources I used, one is an article from All That's Interesting, The Sad, Gruesome Story of the Most Cold-Blooded Serial Killer in History by Laura Martisui. And the second article I used was from Thought Catalog, Heart of Stone, Was Serial Killer Carl Panzram the Meatest Man Who Ever Lived? by Jim Goad. Carl Panzram was described by other people as like this one-man crime wave and too evil to live. And he himself described himself as the spirit of meanness personified. So like, obviously, this guy's fucked up in everyone's view and his own. Yeah, like that he recognized. He's like, "Oh no, I'm a I'm a fucking monster." He's like, "Literally, you like the word mean, like that's me." Except I will go on a limb and say, uh, "Mean is not by any means enough." I know. I'm like, "Mean is a for just honestly serial killers." All I know about him so far, and I'm like, "That's a pretty soft, uh, yeah. soft adjective." Means not intense enough. Trust me. He's a bully. He's a jerk. So. Carl Pantsram stands in a class of his own, not only for this streak of unimaginably brutal crimes that lasted for nearly two decades, but for his absolute lack of remorse. And this lack of remorse is what makes him so sadistic. Pantsram was born in Minnesota in 1891, so I'm taking this way back. This is an older serial killer before serial mm-hmm. killer was a thing. Mm-hmm. His parents were East Prussian immigrants, and his father abandoned the family when Pantsram was a little boy, and 
When he was only 12 years old is when he committed his first burglary, when he stole cake, apples, and a revolver from his neighbors. Which when I read that, I was like, oh, like, oh, he's a little boy going to get, like, you know, desserts and whatnot and a gun. I know. I'm like, okay. Honestly, you know, his first crime, stealing, like, cake and apples. Like, is that a crime? I mean, it is, but, like, yeah, okay, whatever. Oh, a gun, too? Oh, yeah. Um, that's, that's different. It is. And he was caught, and he was placed in the Minnesota State Training School, where he was beaten, raped, and tortured by the staff. The fuck? I know. The Minnesota State Training School was known as the painting house and this is because children left its doors painted with blood and bruises so abuse was something that ran rampant in this school when carl was in his teens he was released from the school and he ran away and after he had gone through you know two years of abuse at this school he burned it down while managing to escape detection but he burned down the fucking school honestly i'm in not mad at that as long as everyone inside was okay can't imagine they were i don't have any research to tell me more about the situation but while i hate what happened to him you'll just see where this goes well and i'm not saying like you know arson is never an answer but the the kind of abuse and torture that you described i get it it's horrible it's horrible that any I child... I get wanting to, like, burn that down. Yeah, it's horrible that any child would have to go through anything like that, as, obviously, you discuss in your case. But save your sympathy. So Pantheram moved from place to place. He would hop on train cars, and it was during one of these times when he was on a train wagon, he was gang-raped by a group of homeless men. And Fuck. this situation really shocked him, But according to him, he said it left him much wiser. And this, you know, during this incident, he was begging in vain for their mercy. And it became this very formative experience that made him dead set on revenge. And so he would soon start raping others. What the fuck? He took this incident and flipped it in a way that's so backwards. Yeah. And... He continued this life of crime by moving around, robbing, burning down buildings, and eventually his theory got him caught. In 1908, he was convicted and sent to Fort Leavenworth, which is the United States disciplinary barracks, um, and I believe that's in Kansas. And future president William Howard Taft personally approved of Pansram's sentence for larceny, and Pansram was you know, he knew how to hold a grudge. And so years later, he would burglarize Taft's house, steal his gun, and use it to commit a string of murders. I'll get into that more. Like, later he would claim his stint at Leavenworth. It just, like, beat out every last scrap of good that remained in him. So any part of him that, I mean, it didn't seem there was much, but any part of him that was there that still seemed to have any good, he said his experience there, like, wiped it out. It just, like, drained him of any humanity he had left. And he only had a tiny bit, as is. God. So when Panzerum was released, he went straight back into his bad habits, and he was caught again, and sentenced on numerous occasions like he was very much in and out of prison over and over because he 
he was actually a pretty shitty thief. Like, he kept getting caught. But he also kept getting out. In 1915, Pam's was, like I said, he was caught again and sentenced to seven years at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Once again, for stealing. There, though, his life was just as bad as it always had been. He was beaten and constantly placed in solitary confinement. More than once, he was hung upside down from the rafters by the guards for 12 hours at a time where he would just scream for mercy. So it's not even that he's being... What the fuck? He's not even being tortured by the inmates. It's by the guards. And again, you have to remember, this is a long time ago when... Yeah. When prison... I mean, it's... Honestly, it's bad now for a lot of inmates. It is. It was even worse then. Now, I forget that basic... That a hundred years ago, which is not that long. Honestly, though, the fact that you just said a hundred years ago is the first time I really realized that this case was over a hundred years ago. But yes, I I can do math, but sometimes it's hard to think about the fact that it's 2019. Fair. But it, it horrifies me that... And I forget about it often, but a hundred years ago, the penal system was fucking torture. It was. That's what it was. It it absolutely was. And as bad as it is in the United States today, it's better than it used to be. It still has a long way to go. Agreed. And at this point, I mean, the guards, I'm sure, had total permission. The inmates are in prison, so, like, whatever happens to them there is, like, whatever. Yeah. So... One time when he was in solitary confinement, he was there for a 61-day stint. So, two months. Holy shit. And he had to eat cockroaches to survive. Honestly, the fact that solitary is still a thing today blows my mind. The fact that that's still used as a form of punishment. I know. And in fucked up cases when the guard's like, oh, it's for your protection. Leave you there indefinitely. Yeah, so you can lose your mind. From being alone yeah. and in a small room, you can go blind because there's there's no, like, depth perception. You're looking at walls, like a small room with walls that are all the same color. Like, you can't see distance. So you start to lose that part of your sight. It's literally, like, it's torture. And I think, I think it's under the Geneva Convention of Torture that solitary confinement is considered like torture and a crime against humanity but here we are we still use it to this day and while i'm not trying to defend carl pantsram he's a fucking monster he was tortured a lot when he was in prison and and again it's one of those things that we can't look at this through a 2019 lens and Mm -hmm. judge the situation by that because at the time this was normal. And as fucked up as that is, that's that's the truth that we're looking at. Yeah. Well, it's you have to have a very dual perspective. Because you have to understand that this was normal yeah. for the time. But you also have to understand, you know, you also can look at it in a way of like, you know, I wonder what would have been had they not gone through these things. Maybe the exact same thing, same shit would have happened. But maybe not. There's no way to and know. And that is the, that is like the age old question of is a killer born or made? Yeah. And I mean, we don't have an answer to that. But, you know, when you look at something like this and we talk about solitary confinement, at the time it was the norm. Now we can look at it happening today and be like, this is still super fucked up. Why are we still doing it? 
So it's just, yeah. again, not defending Panzeram, fucked up monster, but he got treated like shit. Yeah. Well, it's in the same way that in my story, Gertrude, she'd been abused by former husbands herself. You know, she she was super depressed. She was abusing drugs and stuff. And it's like, that is part of her story, but so is everything else. While he was there at Oregon State Penitentiary, he helped a fellow inmate escape. And when this inmate escaped, he killed the warden. And because Panzeram had helped him escape, he was seen as an accomplice and received more punishment. And he himself tried to escape in 1917, but he got caught. And he was just like, okay, whatever. It is what it is. And he was totally undeterred. And so just a year later in 1918, he successfully escaped. Throughout his time in and out of prison, he's obviously using a ton of different aliases. Names such as Jefferson Davis, Jeff Baldwin, John O'Leary, Jack Allen, Jefferson Rhodes. Wow. Like, he was just not creative when it came to the aliases. But to be completely honest, all of these names are believable. I mean, they are, but it'd be me being like, I'm, a, I'm Johnson, California. That sounds like a, an actor. No, I mean, I mean, Jeff Baldwin sounds like an actor because of Baldwin. But like All the John O'Leary, Jack Allen, Jefferson Rose. I mean, no, these are They're absolutely good. people that you could find in the phone They're book good names. kind of thing. But they all sound like like if someone was like, "Which of these do you think is an alias?" I'd be like, "Those." Uh, like no one is like is like, "Oh, my name is David Marcheski." It's like, "Oh, that's fun." I feel like when it comes to creating an alias, there's a level of believability somewhere in the middle where at one end there's names that are like i'm john doe i'm james smith that's like okay sure like, you no, are. you're not exactly and on the other hand you're like oh i'm lakshmi marchetsky and you're like oh wow okay that's very that's very memorable and then there's somewhere in the middle where it's like oh thomas dukakis and you're like yep that's a person that I'm not going to remember. Well, and I will say all of his aliases, they flowed really well. They flow well. They're just a little basic. Apologies to anyone who... His name John O'Leary. That is your actual name. Um, <laughs> no offense. But like, you know, no offense at all, but it's, it's kind of basic if you're going for a fake name. Panzeram did time in Texas, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Connecticut, New York, Washington, D.C., and even some in Scotland. Bitch, I haven't even been to all those places, and it's 2019. He literally, like I said, he was pretty much always in prison. Like, he would serve a sentence, get out, do some more shit, get back in. Like, always in jail. I feel like all he did was travel and crime, which would be a fun blog, but like... Minus the crime? No. Um, uh, well, yeah. That would actually be a good podcast, Traveling Crime. Murderers who travel across the world. There are probably way more than we actually want to think about, so I'm scared of that, that idea, is, actually. That's real. That's so real. Isisagawa. Don't know why that was the first one who popped to my mind. Terrifying. Travel and kill. So in 1920, after Pantsram burgled William Taft's home and stole his gun, like I was saying earlier, he bought a yacht, because he also stole all of his money, too. Who the fuck buys a yacht in... Ca- I mean, 
again, I guess it's the 1920s. How else do you buy something other than cash? Yeah. But Jesus Christ, did people, when they bought homes, I mean, I imagine back then it was like, this mansion is $600, but $600 was a lot of money back then because inflation. But like, did you just have cash? Were you even able to be like, yo, bank, put me on a 15-year plan? I don't think so. And I think if you were buying a mansion, you did probably have cash. Okay, well, okay, fair. So, Panzerham, in his yacht, started luring drunken soldiers from the bars, um, like, around New York City. He would bring them onto his yacht, where he would rape them and kill them by shooting them in the head. And then he would dump their bodies into the water off Long Island. He claims that he killed 10 men this way, and his spree only ended when his boat crashed and eventually sank. So it's not like he just stopped because he was done. It was because he sunk his fucking yacht. He was arrested in 1920 in Connecticut on charges of burglary and possession of a loaded handgun, and he only served six months in prison. So think about it. He literally has just killed... Who the fuck gets six months in prison? I feel like you could, like, sneeze near a cop and get more than that. Well, and what makes this crazy is he had literally killed, like, ten people. But they didn't know that. He was arrested for burglary and this loaded gun. And so he was released and decided to head towards Africa. He was, like, done with the U.S., And he got off in Angola, where he found a young boy, raped him, and killed him. After this incident, um, again, because he still has the gun, he said, His brains were coming out of his ears when I left him, and he will never be any deader. So when we talk... What the fuck? (laughs) I know, right? When we talk about someone who literally has no empathy, Carl Panzerim is a fucking monster. Like... Again, this is why these articles were saying he is the most cold-blooded, sadistic killer in history. Because he just did so much. And what just blows my mind is how shitty of a thief he was. Yet he is somehow still getting away with all... It's like he's getting caught on the little shit. So they don't even look into everything else. Well, I mean, it, it also makes me wonder if, you know, in the... 20s and shit did they know to look for like oh the bullet etchings and match that up and see if you know that fit this like this specific gun or if they saw a bullet was like ah it was a nine millimeter we know that see i don't think so i don't think they knew all of these things to look for just because technology hadn't gotten them there yet so he killed this young boy and he was just craving more death more destruction. He wanted more. So just a few days later, he killed six local guides who were about to take him on this crocodile hunting expedition. He kills them and feeds their bodies to the crocodiles. What the fuck? Who obviously eagerly ate them up. They were like, okay, it's lunch. Yeah, they're crocodiles. They're like, ooh, meat. Thanks. so fucked up. Like, literally, he's going on this tour in Africa kills all six of the guides, and dumps them in the water. year later, he leaves Africa and heads to Lisbon. But when he got there, people were looking for him. You know, they were aware of his murders in Africa. So he gets to Lisbon, and he's like, oh shit, okay, not far enough away. They know about me. 
So he goes back to America. Really? Really. That surprises me. Because I don't even know if today, if you committed a bunch of murders, you know, let's say like Santiago, Chile, and then you escaped and were walking around California, you know, you know, you're one continent away. I don't know if people in the in the States would be looking for you. Well, this is 1920. They may not know. Well, and I guess because Angola was a Portuguese colony, that it would be more in line with, like, this serial killer in Puerto Rico coming to the U.S., where, you know, there would be that kind of recognition. There would be the communication between the two, but when you think of Africa to Lisbon to the United States, why? Why would they spread that information to the United States? It's not relevant. Exactly. Well, like, from Angola to Lisbon, yes, but from Lisbon to the U.S., no. And when he got back to the United States in 1922, he says he raped and killed three young boys, beating one of them to death with a rock. He also said he shot a man to death in New York and was also suspected of killing someone else in Baltimore in 1928. So he's just going around. He's just murdering and wherever he yeah. goes. And in 1928, he was arrested again for robbery and sent back to Leavenworth. He was sentenced to 25 years after he confessed to killing two young boys. And also because of this like criminal record he'd built up, he got 25. Yeah. But he's clearly killed more than these two boys. Well, I mean, also 25 years for double murder plus robbery plus his history. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Also, especially back then, I'm surprised that that's the sentence. The thing is, he was never arrested for murder. This just, yeah, this just happened fair. and he said it and so they're like, okay, here's 25 years. Uh, he once again tried to escape, but he was not successful. The guards caught him and beat him until he was unconscious. About a year later, he killed the laundry foreman by beating him dead with an iron bar while all of the other inmates watched. So for this crime, he was sentenced to death. So this is the first time he's actually truly being sentenced for a murder. And it's when he did while he was in prison. In front of a trillion people. But for him, the death sentence was almost a dream come true. There was even a set of human rights activists who tried to interfere on his behalf, trying to save his life, and he hated them. He wrote them threatening letters. He said he wanted to kill them all. Like, he didn't want to live anymore. And when he was on death row, he made a friend with a guard. The guard's name was Henry Lesser, and the guard, like, felt sorry for him and gave him a dollar to buy some cigarettes and the two of them became friends. Lesser soon began slipping Pantram writing materials and was encouraging him to write his life story, to write this down, write his memoir. So Pantram yeah. started writing and he he didn't leave anything out. All of the gruesome details. So this would turn into his confession. And fuck. I mean This guard, fucking kudos, especially back then, being a guard on death row 
I mean, someone who's like, here, I'm going to have enough humanity for you. Write down your story. You know, have, have what humanity you have left and use it. Little does he know he's talking to someone who has no humanity. Who's done all of this fucked up yeah. shit. Who's murdered and raped all of these people. Yep. And he's just given him the tools to now air it all out. Well, and the thing is, he's already on death row. So it's not like yeah. he can get a worse sentence if he confesses to anything. And so, you know, he writes. You can actually find, I mean, his memoir, it, it's out there. But there are also letters back and forth between the two. And like his memoir in like handwritten, like his own handwriting. You can find them and read those letters um, at the San Diego State University Library website. It's like the Carl Pansram letters. And I found them. I, I skimmed them. To be completely honest, after reading how gruesome these were, I was a little nervous to actually look into it. So I didn't. Yeah, I don't I don't like that. I mean, it's it's something that I definitely understand the significance of preserving the historical artifact and preserving this piece of history because honestly without these letters there are so many deaths that are unsolved there are so many people's stories who have a question mark as an ending and this provides closure this provides a conclusion this provides some kind of ending to these people i mean even if they're like anonymous and not identified as the victims like this gives some kind of something out there. Well, it's... But it's just... I, I don't know. Well, it's how we have a lot of the answers and how we know a lot of what he did. Because in this memoir, Pansram detailed the history of his life, the murders he committed, and this philosophy that informed his killing spree. This manuscript is more than... 20,000 words, but it really can be summed up in three. Might makes right. So he was a really big guy. He was over six foot and he dominated people. And that's why a lot of what he did was successful. Um, He was able to carry this out and intimidate people and just literally beat this monster. But Pantheram blames his crimes on the treatment that was doled out to him in reform school and in prison. And he said in this memoir, is it unnatural that I should have absorbed these things and have become what I am today, a treacherous, degenerate, brutal human savage, devoid of all decent feeling without conscious morals, pity, sympathy, principle, or any single good trait? Why am I what I am? He only had a year to write his whole memoir, and he was hanged in 1930. In the memoir, he admitted to killing over 20 people and that he had sodomized at least a thousand males. Jesus, a thousand? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, I discussed the men that he raped and murdered, but there are obviously a ton of other men that he raped throughout his travels. And throughout everywhere he was going, and I'm sure in prison, he never apologized. And he said he would kill more if he was given the chance. And before he was hung, his final words were, Hurry it up, you hooser bastard. I could kill a dozen men while you're screwing around. Again, though, 
He wanted he wanted to die because he knew if he kept living, he would just keep killing. And he just, he literally had no emotion. He didn't give a shit about anyone, even himself. He just didn't even care. He was like, just fucking kill me. So Lesser eventually published Pansram's writings in a book titled Pansram, A Journal of Murder. But it wasn't until 1970. And it took that long because of how gruesome and brutal this manuscript was. No one wanted to publish it. It was eventually adapted into a 2012 film called Carl Panzram, The Spirit of Hatred and Vengeance. Throughout all of this, everything he did, the only small bit of regret that Panzram ever expressed was that he didn't have a chance to kill more. He was sad that the pain that he inflicted his entire life was all that he could do. He wanted to do more of it. What the f- I'm telling you, he had no soul. Like, this dude had no soul. No. That's Carl Panzram. If you'd like to hear more, definitely, you know, watch this movie. Check out the book. Um, I mean, if you want to read it in his own words. Again, like I said, one thing for me personally, I feel like I can read, like, a journalist or an author writing about someone and, like, the things that they did. But when you read it in their own words, it's just really horrifying. Yeah, reading it, because it's almost like a picture-perfect glimpse into their mind. It's their vocabulary. It's how they are specifically. In what they're doing. All of yeah. this. Yeah. And it, no, it it takes it to a whole nother level that. So that's Carl Pantsram. Real fucked up guy. Okay. Well. Um, I guess next step is jumping into postmortem. Yes, it is. Let's do it. Well, Carl Panzram was a fucking monster, but yeah. Sylvia Lycan's murder was stretched out for months and was so painful. And the fact that the goddamn community was involved in it is what it feels like. Like it was like the whole neighborhood against her. Yeah. I do think. That case was more intense. I mean, Panzram was like the devil literally walking this earth with how many things that he says he did. But again, yeah. with... But so was Gertrude. She was. And with the fact that Panzram happened so long ago, we don't have the amount of detail. But it's almost like that whole... Almost that almost makes it scarier, like not having the details. But yeah. I do still think that Gertrude was an absolute monster, and the way she was able to convince her children and neighborhood children to participate in Sylvia's torture. No, no, no. I think yours was more intense. I agree. I think just the level of detail that went into this, and. And honestly, the fact that Sylvia was being murdered for four months straight. Yes. I mean, her death was just dragged out that entire period. It was. And I, again, still stand with, I don't think I or you, I don't think either of us have done a case as brutal and as awful as the murder of Sylvia Likens. I mean, I, I got to a point about halfway through my research where I was like, I don't want to do this case. Like, I totally get that. This is too much. I totally get this that. This is too hard. I cannot imagine a person going through this 
and being so strong to survive all of that for so long. Yeah. Which, again, is why I don't want to fucking see this movie. I don't want to see this in person. I've already seen it in my mind. And I'm sure the movie is great. And maybe once I'm removed from this a couple weeks, couple months from now, I'll be at a point where I can watch the movie. But right now, no. I don't know if this is a movie I could watch. Because you're right. My mental image is more than I can honestly bear and comprehend and seeing this being acted out i i don't think i want to i get it i get what you're saying and i love ellen page and she's phenomenal but i just don't think i could see the reality of what she could bring to the screen for this exactly and so i i agree i think you know your case definitely had the numbers um but i think because of my case happening Honestly, horrifyingly, only like 30, 40 years later. But it it has the reality and the brutality and the detail surrounding it that I agree. All right. Well, I will once again pick the topic and I think I'm going to dial it down a bit. I would appreciate that. (laughs) I mean, it'll still be a good topic, but we've had a lot of very intense and brutal and crazy the last few episodes so um but it's gonna be great well i know it will be but thank y'all so much for uh listening to this if y'all enjoyed it make sure to rate and review us on apple podcasts it helps us move up in the rankings helps other listeners find us and helps other people who are interested in true crime who've never heard of blood and wine be like oh shit what's this click on us and hear the amazing golden syrup that is our voices. Oh my god, that was so weird. Um, golden syrup. Yeah. I didn't know where you were going there, and I got scared. I was like, is he well, going to say golden showers? What? Yes. <laughs> okay, but also, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, follow us, message us, let us know what you think. Uh, we love chatting with you guys. We always answer messages when you send them. So keep coming our way. Absolutely. But again, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in. Hope y'all enjoyed this. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.